as one of the pastors here in First Alliance Church. And this morning, it is my privilege and my joy, don't you just love that word? It is my joy to stand before you again and to open God's word with you. Let's open in prayer before we look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, Please open our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears this morning that we may receive your word to us in exceeding dimensions. Holy Spirit, through the ministry of your word, cause us to deepen our worship and uh, and our understanding of who Jesus is and teach us to respond in faith to what you want us to hear and what you want us to understand today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been following the sermon series with us on Luke-Acts, you'll notice or you'll begin to notice that the Gospel of Luke is like a treasure chest. It's filled with passages of immense value that are not isolated, but they're carefully um, and thoughtfully positioned and placed within the whole Gospel that really has one goal— to point us to who Jesus is, and to deepen our understanding of his identity, his ministry, and his mission. So every miracle story that we'll encounter, just like the one that we're going to look at today, was chosen and positioned strategically within the gospel to tell us something that we need to know about Jesus and challenge our preconceived formulaic expectations so that we begin to wonder, so that we begin to wonder at the magnitude of who Jesus really is and what it means that he has come that he has ushered in the kingdom of God with restoration power and with full authority to reverse the effects of sin and sickness. So we're now in Luke chapter 7, and you may have noticed the events that already took place and its significance. So in Luke chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus communicated his agenda his agenda of actions, one second. His mission statement, so to speak, he conveyed what he intends to do in Luke chapter 4 and what his actions will be like. So in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blinds, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus read this from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and declared in everyone's hearing that his ministry is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, and that fulfillment is to be found in the person of Jesus himself, who was appointed with the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaimed, commended, and improved by God the Father publicly during his baptism. Then in Luke chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus described what this new kingdom looks like. What is this new kingdom that he's ushering in? He described the values and behaviors of those seeking to be part of this new kingdom under the reign of this new king, Jesus. 
So he described what the reign of God and how it will be recognized by radical values that are so different from the worldly values of the other kingdoms of the world. And that is what he did in the Sermon on the Plain. And so by Luke chapter 7, now he's ready to reveal his identity through his deeds and actions. All of Jesus' deeds and actions that will begin to unfold are the fulfillment of all of God's promises that he said from the beginning. Now, when Jesus healed the Roman centurion servant, this is the sermon that we had last week, the healing is the gospel. The gospel is demonstrated and embodied in his deeds. And in that miracle, he gave us a glimpse of what it is that this new kingdom is all about. Today's text is one such episode. And most of you here are are already familiar with a passage that we're going to look at. It's the story about a widow from Nain. Now, she's not named in the passage. It doesn't mean she doesn't have a name. It's just that her name was not provided for us in the passage. But what we do know is that she was a widow whose only son had just died. So please turn with me now in your Bibles in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. You can use your Bibles or you can just look at the screen. And I will have it on the PowerPoint and I'm going to be reading from the NASB translation. So Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain and his disciples were going along with him accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went all over Judea and all the surrounding district. The word of the Lord for us this morning, taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. So as I was preparing for the sermon, I came across a quote by a man named Benjamin Franklin. And if you're not familiar with who he is, Benjamin Franklin helped draft the Declaration of Independence in which 13 American colonies declared their freedom from British rule. I'm not American, I'm not British, that's not the point. But what he said was rather interesting, and I'm just going to put it up so, so that you can see. He said, and I quote, this is Benjamin Franklin, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. This quote is not poetry. It's just an observation of what to expect in life on earth. That's normal, death and taxes. You know, even the weather forecast is never 100% accurate. It's always like 50% something. But death and taxes are 100% certain because it's part of the normal cycle of life. It's normal. Even in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 2, it says, There is a time to be born and a time to die. It's normal. 
what that means for us in this room that everybody here will die physically one day. I'm not referring to spiritual death, so please do not email me. The only differences in our death is that my departure date and your departure date and so on and so forth, we have different departure uh, dates, but death is certain because it's normal. Taxes are also normal. When I go to the store and I buy something, I look at the receipt, I don't go, there's taxes. You know why? I'm expecting it. It's part of normal life. It's normal. But if you think for some reason, I don't think death is going to get to me. You know what? Taxes will. Chances are taxes are going to find you. And for some, for the very, very rich, it could be the cause of death. Except it's not, the, it's not my cause of death because I'm not in the wealthy category. However, you know what's not normal? What's not normal is that no parent ever expects to plan the funeral of their children ever because that is abnormal in any culture or any history, any era in history, that is abnormal. According to nature, according to the flow of nature, parents die before their children. Children are the ones who should bury their, uh, their parents and planning the funeral services for their aged parents, not the other way around. Because behind the death of any child, regardless of their age, regardless of the cause of death, you know what? Behind all that is the heart of a grieving mother. It's very, very hard to recover from that kind of loss. Now, today, there are many grieving mothers. You heard about the mass shootings in Ohio and Texas. Many children, many people have died senselessly today. And today, as I speak, there are mothers who are grieving and there are parents planning for the funeral of their children. That is abnormal, right? It's very, very sad. I just heard it in the news last night and this morning. Which is why the story of the widow from Nain that we just read, when you read it, it pulls at your emotions and immediately your heart goes out to this woman, this mother who already lost her husband, but now her only son. So right away when we look at the story, when we read the story, you'll notice the abnormality of this story of a widowed mother, a parent, going to bury her only son. Now, the story of Nain occurs only here in Luke, and the village of Nain is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except in Luke 7. Now, after the healing of the centurion servant in Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples walked about 25 miles southwest to the village of Nain. And according to some sources, this little village still exists today, except it's under a different spelling, N-E-I-N. So I googled it because I was curious. And you know what I found out on Google Maps? Guess. They have a McDonald's drive through there in Nain today, which means you can have a happy meal if you decide to go to Nain today. So Nain 
was probably one of the farthest places from Galilee in Jesus' travels, and it's quite insignificant compared to its surrounding areas. And I also read this very brief commentary that says that the village of Nain wasn't even noted on any Roman military maps because it didn't have much significance from an economic or military point of view. So I guess what makes Nain very significant is the fact that Jesus chose to go there. That's why it's significant. Now in the opening verses, verse 11, Luke describes how a large crowd accompanied and surrounding Jesus and his disciples on the 25 miles journey to Nain from Capernaum. This large crowd were probably witnesses to the miracle that took place in Capernaum. And because of what they witnessed, they decided to accompany Jesus on this journey where they will again serve as witnesses to the miracle that will take place there but they just didn't know it, but they just went along with Jesus. So as Jesus and this large crowd that accompanied him drew near the city of Nain, they met another large crowd. So one large crowd and another large crowd. This large crowd was leaving, exiting the village. One crowd was going in and another crowd was going out, and these two crowds met at the city gate. The crowd that was exiting the village was a very different kind of a crowd. The crowd that was going in, they were happy. They were, they were thinking of what happened at Capernaum. But the crowd that was going out was quite different. You see, it was a funeral procession involving a mother, a widow, who just lost her son. And in that culture at that time, a widow without children, especially a son, a male heir meant that she's now alone and that she has a need, she has a, she's needing protection and provision, which means if you're a widow without a son, it means she has now no means to sustain her life. She just lost all there is to go on living for survival. Now, the funeral procession that was leaving Nain, uh, it was leaving because according to ritual purities, to purity laws, Burials were prohibited inside the city walls. The temperature in that part of the world caused dead bodies to decompose rapidly and create this foul odor. And it will uh, create a health risk for the whole community. So burials have to follow immediately after a person has been pronounced dead. So the fact that there is a funeral only means that this widow's son in the story must most likely just, just happen to have just died, and now they were on their way to bury him outside the city walls. Now, according to custom, the bereaved mother or whoever is grieving in this funeral would walk in front of the coffin leading the funeral procession rather than walking behind. And when these two large crowds of people met at the city gate, Jesus was also walking in front of the large crowd that was following him, following him. And these two large crowds meet, Jesus in the front, the widow in the front, and they meet face to face, up close and personal. And when Jesus sees her, he gives her his full attention. When the Lord saw her, it says in verse 13, he felt compassion for her and he said something to her, do not weep. 
Jesus felt immediate compassion when he sees the widow and tells the widow not to weep. He didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss or my sincere condolences, which are the usual phrases that we would usually say to someone who is usually grieving. That's what I say when I go to uh, a funeral. But because you see, Jesus never said that because you see, he, was, he wasn't trying to comfort her. What he was doing, he was giving her an assurance of life. He was giving her hope. And that when he approached the body, he raised her son from the dead and gave him back to his mother, reuniting them. He said to her, don't weep, don't cry. Like, how? You know, that is an, an impossible and an inappropriate thing to say to someone who is mourning, especially to a mother who's just lost her only son. How can you tell this mother, don't cry? You know, it's, it's such an impossible thing. But instead, what Jesus did, in order for her to do the impossible thing, which is not to cry over the death of her only son, he enabled her to obey what he commanded her by raising her son out of compassion immediately after he tells her not to weep. And you know what Jesus did? He reverses this abnormal situation. Notice that Jesus did not require anything from her. No amount of faith came from her or from anyone else in the crowd that could have activated his power. But instead, Jesus acted out of his lordly compassion towards the widow, not in any response or anything else that she could offer her. He then touched the coffin and raised the dead son. Now, I don't know how many of you here know much about Judaism, but Jews are radically so obsessed about purity laws, and they spend so much energy on a daily basis avoiding ritual and cleanliness. That's why this was highlighted in the story when Jesus touched the coffin. But, you know, Jesus wasn't concerned about purity laws. In fact, he ignored it. He went right to the coffin. He touched it. He wasn't concerned about being contaminated because such laws don't apply to him. So the crowds, when they saw Jesus walking to the coffin towards the dead body, must have gasped, you know, and, clo you know, and they were thinking he could be contaminated. Now, here's a purity law from... The Old Testament, it says that the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. But instead, this is what Jesus did. He came up. He came up. He touched the coffin and the pairs came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, according to Old Testament purity laws, anything clean or pure, anything clean or pure that comes in contact with death or any form of uncleanliness will become unclean and contaminated. For example, you've just taken a nice hot shower. You're very, very uh, clean, squeaky clean from head to foot. You put on a nice, clean, white linen shirt, and then when you step out of the house, you see this 
filthy garbage dump filled with all kinds of filthy things. And in your clean linen shirt, you jump into that filthy garbage. What do you think is going to happen? You will become dirty because what's clean when in contact with what's not clean will become unclean. What happened instead was quite the opposite in this story. It was a reversal. When Jesus touched the coffin, when he touched the unclean, the cleanliness and purity of Jesus made the unclean become clean and death reversed into life. Instead of decomposition, death reversed itself and the dead son rose from the dead and started talking and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Usually it's the opposite. Now, brothers and sisters, that is the gospel embodied in the person of Jesus in his deeds. Jesus is revealing himself through this miracle and showing us what the reign and power of the kingdom of God looks like in real time, not in words, but by reversing the effects of sin and death. He is demonstrating to us what the gospel is like in real life. You see, when Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, he wasn't using his power and authority to give personal and individual favors for the Roman centurion and the widow of Nain for the sake of popularity. That's not what he's doing. He came to bring the kingdom of God on earth and to let the people see it and recognize it. These miracles are audiovisuals of the kingdom of God, a glimpse of the reign of God and what it looks like. Jesus is revealing his absolute power and authority over death, sickness, and any economic situation that this widow was, fa uh, was facing. And when he met her at the city gate, he reversed everything. And through this miracle, he is revealing what he will also do for us one day in the future when the inbreaking kingdom of God reaches its full completion and fulfillment in the final day. He is foreshadowing what is going to happen in the end, in the last scene of the redemption story. This was his demonstration, a reversal of everything that contaminated humanity. We see here Jesus as the compassionate Lord, the reuniter of separated loved ones. He gave the son back to his mother. And what we did here, what he did here for the widowed mother and son, he will also do for us one day for all of you, for all of us who choose to be under this reign in a perfect and final form in the final day in the future. This was an event that was foreshadowing something that is yet to come. He will bring comfort to those who weep. He will wipe away all our tears. He will raise us up from death and will reunite us in the heavenly realm with our loved ones who have died with him. He will reverse what was contaminated, making all things new, and he's going to eliminate taxes, right? I knew someone was going to like make a comment. Yes. And this is what he said in Revelations 21. He will wipe away every tear. This is what is, he's foreshadowing what is yet to come. This is what is going to come. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is what the reign of God looks like embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, unlike what the Roman centurion did when he sent two delegations to Jesus to ask for his, for, to ask for his help, this woman didn't even speak. There's no record of her words. She never even asked others so she, to help her so she can get to Jesus. And maybe, unlike the centurion who probably heard about Jesus before, uh, she has probably never even heard of Jesus since Nain was this insignificant, out-of-the-way little village that was quite some distance away, which was too insignificant for the Romans to even note on their military maps. Maybe that's why. And maybe she never even knew who Jesus was until now. She had no credentials. She was a woman, most likely a woman of color, like me. She was not wealthy. She had no rank or title. A woman whose name was not even mentioned and lost all means of survival, but Jesus went to her. There's no great faith or profound understanding that she had about Jesus that was credited to her, but only her despair and her helplessness was recorded. But Jesus went to her. Her sorrow was so great that she, could, she was not even aware who stood before her at the city gate. She didn't, even, she didn't even know or acknowledge who Jesus was because she didn't know. But Jesus went to her. So after telling her not to weep, Jesus simply goes over to the dead body, touched the coffin, and with a command of full authority, he says to the body, young man, I say to you, rise up. Now, there's this one fascinating thing that is so tender about Jesus that I want to share with you. When he addressed and raised the dead, that's Jairus' daughter, um, this, the, the son of the widow of Nain and Lazarus, when Jesus called them from the dead, he always called them affectionately, either by their name Lazarus or some form of endearment uttered in kindness. So Jairus' daughter, he didn't just say get up. You know what? He said Talitha, meaning little girl in Hebrew. Talitha kum. And then to the young man, to the son of the widow of Nain, he said, young man, rise up. And to Lazarus, he addressed him by his name. So even the way Jesus speaks, his manner, he speaks with tenderness. He speaks with kindness. He speaks with full of compassion. You know what? Let's copy and imitate the way our compassionate Lord speaks. Amen? Let's speak that way to one another. Now, the reality of widows in the ancient world is uncertain, and Scripture portrays widows and orphans as the most helpless people and members of society. And in the Bible, there is one book that focuses entirely on the lives of two widows. You know what book it is? Ruth. It talks about the lives of Naomi and Ruth. They had no means of support, but God reversed their situation. 
Ruth is even mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross in pain and atoning for the sins of humanity, he never forgot about the plight of the widows, even on the cross. And one of Jesus' last words before he died was his concern for the widow. His mother Mary was a widow. As he was dying, he understood the situation that Mary was in. She had no means of, uh, of, to support herself. And her agony was so great as she watched her firstborn son dying on the cross. And one of the seven last words of Jesus was about caring for the situation of the widow. And I'm just going to show you that verse. He said in uh, John 19, this is Jesus hanging on the cross with all of our sin on his shoulders. When he saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Another widow in the, in the genealogy of Jesus. Her name was Mary. Widows have a very special place in Jesus' compassionate heart. And if you are a widow today and in deep sorrow, I just deeply want to encourage you today. Jesus is full of compassion and he is moved by your tears. You matter to Jesus and he sees you. He sees your pain. He sees your sorrow and he sees your tears. You're not insignificant. And he will go out of his way to meet you, to seek you out even in a remote village like name, and even if you won't recognize, even if you can't recognize that he's standing in front of you, he will seek you. So this funeral procession carries with it a kind of death for the widow as well. It was also like her funeral procession because this funeral um, also signifies the death of her only means of survival. But Jesus went out of his way to the small, insignificant village of Nain to bring good news to this poor widow and to reverse the effects of sin. Isn't that beautiful? The miracle that he did there is the good news. It is an embodiment of the gospel as powerful as any words Jesus might have spoken and in this miracle, we catch a glimpse of what the reign of God looks like on earth. A reign with which we can participate even now because it's already here among us. It's not some far off thing that we have to wait for. It's already here among us. So the crowds that witnessed this miracle, you know how they reacted? They reacted in fear. Imagine to see a dead man who is on his way to be buried and raised to life by a word and then starts talking immediately. That kind of scene, if it happened right now in front of me, I, it will also strike a fear in me. So I'm not judging these people. See what it says here? Fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went all over Judea and in all the surrounding districts. So they began to tell the other people, the witnesses that Jesus came with, they began to tell the surrounding districts. 
Fear is a natural reaction of man to supernatural power, the power of God. This fear eventually subsided, and the crowds began to glorify God and to say that God has visited his people. It is the same reaction that the disciples had when Jesus calmed the storm. They were afraid because they were in the presence of supernatural power. But after their fears subsided, they praised God for raising up a great prophet among them. You see, the crowds were connecting the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, both prophets in the Old Testament, to the miracle that they just witnessed. Therefore, the people thought that Jesus must be a great prophet in the same category, in the same order of Elijah and Elisha, who also raised people from the dead. They thought that Jesus was just like them. But compared to Elijah and Elisha, it was effortless for Jesus. Jesus had to only just speak and the dead would rise. Elijah and Elisha had to pray to God first and to ask God to raise the dead, but Jesus simply spoke and the word, he spoke the word and it was done. Jesus himself is the final authority over life and death. And in this miracle, again, he's foreshadowing something. He is foreshadowing the resurrection. When he died after three days, he rose again, triumphing over death in, in finality. He is um, foreshadowing his death and resurrection. Now, the crowds proclaim that Jesus is a great prophet, but you know what they failed to do? They failed to see that Jesus was more than just a prophet. It's a pity that although their, their fear turned to glorifying God, their estimate and their recognition of Jesus was that Jesus was just a great prophet, nothing more. It never ascended beyond the fact that Jesus was just a great prophet among them. What the crowd struggled to understand was Jesus' great authority, that he was much more than just a prophet. And then after this, the news started to spread around Jesus and the surrounding area around this insignificant little village of Nain. Now, some people today accept Jesus as a very great religious teacher and maybe give him the respect of a great prophet. But the reality is, based on what his deeds, his actions, what it reveals about himself, is that Jesus is not just a prophet, he is God. He's not bound by laws, by nature, by death, or any formula or expectations we may have of him. He's God, you know? He can do whatever he chooses to do, not out of whim, but always out of the action of compassion. His deeds are always compassionate. And because he's also human, he can understand and sympathize with our pain and treat us as individual. So now what is the significance of putting the story of the widow of Nain beside the story of the Roman centurion side by side? What's the significance of putting these two together? So I'm just going to show you a chart. See, these are two very different people, the Roman centurion and the widow from, May, from Nain. Both were needing the touch of Jesus, but Jesus responded very differently to these two individuals. 
To the Roman centurion, he was amazed by this great faith of this soldier. And to the, to the widow of Nain, you know how he responded? He responded out of his compassion towards this widow. His presence and his compassionate touch are not bound and limited to a person's gender, to a person's race, social and economic status. In fact, race makes no difference to Jesus at all. Above all, what is clear from these miracles is that Jesus' authority extends over space, over distance, over disease, and even death. The healing that he gives to the Roman centurion and the raising of the widow's son reveals that he has the authority and the power to reverse the condition of those in need out of his compassionate heart. He doesn't even need to be there to be physically there, be present to respond. And the good news is that anyone is welcome to share in this benefit. Jesus is our compassionate Lord who wills and acts according to his authority and who uses that authority and power not for himself, but to draw people to himself. He came to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to give recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to reunite separated loved ones, to reverse death, to wipe away our tears and our sadness, and to make all things new. He's not just a great prophet but he is God himself. And he sees you, he says you, he sees you. And even when you think you're insignificant or you have nothing at all to bring to the table, you have nothing to offer to Jesus, Jesus will go out of his way to redeem you and restore you. And there is nothing about you, not your race, not your gender, your status, your wealth, or your lack of wealth. Nothing can stop Jesus to stop him from redeeming you because you are his beloved. You are his precious child. And I pray that these truths about who he is, may this encourage you all today. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come on up.